I echo what our shepherd Galen Siegler said earlier that we do hope and pray and feel like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We have seen more and more coming and being involved in person in our assemblies and we're grateful for that. We of course see our numbers very strong uh, throughout these months online and we appreciate all of you and your steadfastness and faithfulness in worshiping together with us as well. And it is a blessing to be able to know that uh, uh, God has seen us through these last 12 months. I believe this week is the week. Uh, Somebody posted something on social media last week that said something like, uh, a year ago at this time, we didn't know that this would be the last week of normal life. (laughs) And I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, But God has seen us through. He has seen his people through far worse times than what we have experienced And we're grateful for his presence with us in our difficulties, uh, especially over these last 12 plus months. It's a blessing to be able to experience all of these things, uh, ups and downs together, as a church family. Uh, Whether it's being able to have contact in person, being able to have contact uh, through uh, technology, what a great blessing that has been. We are far from out of the woods, and I appreciate our shepherds uh, reminding us that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves and to continue to practice uh, good common sense and be considerate of, of each other. But we look forward to the time when we will be able to do more activities like the pictures we saw just a few moments ago. Our children at the Yesterland farm uh, just this past December and our our kids that are away in Arkansas this weekend on a camp uh, camping trip. I told our, uh, our class this morning as we were talking about that, I've been on those, I've done those, I've loved those. I've got the shirt to prove it. And that's where it ends right now. And so I am super excited that we have a group that is hiking up mountains and having devotionals and hiking down mountains and camping out. I think that is that is wonderful, and I appreciate all of those that take part in that with our children uh, and with our young people. What a blessing that is. You know, there are really several times in Paul's writings where he just breaks out in doxology, which is the term that literally means, combination of two words, uh, a word of glory. And at times in his writings of inspired scripture, he is considering something that so overwhelms him that he just breaks out in a song of praise. And we see that several times in the book of Romans, but two that especially come to my mind is at the end of Romans chapters 9 through 11, when he spends three chapters talking about something that he decides he can't understand. (laughs) I love that. He wrestles with it, and then at the end, he throws up his hands in prayer and praise to the God who knows, to the God who does understand things even that he cannot, how this plan of God fits everyone together, uh, Jew and non-Jew, and where they have their place, and how, how that combines to form one body, and all the things that go into that. Uh, Paul ends that great passage with a song of praise about the wonders and the wisdom of Almighty God. And another place where he does that is at the end of Romans chapter 7. 
You could almost make the case that throughout chapter 8, he does the same thing. And he does it in several places. And I can't wait to talk about my favorite chapter in the Bible next Sunday. Romans chapter 8. Our shepherd Galen alluded to that in some of his comments during his thoughts and his prayer. uh, That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That great chapter begins, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But having a whole chapter of contrasting life according to the flesh versus living according to the spirit, to get there, to get there, he has to acknowledge what living according to the flesh really means. What being a fleshly, carnal people really means. And that's what he talks about in Romans chapter 7. And he ends with a great song of praise, a great doxology that says thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that that's the only way we find victory over the flesh Romans chapters 1 through 6 has given us a choice our own righteousness which brings frustration and death or the righteousness of God which brings forgiveness and life When you couch it like that, it's what we call a no-brainer, right? I'm going to choose life over death. I'm going to choose righteousness over sin. I'm going to choose security and assurance over frustration. And yet, for some reason or another, and it's because of the flesh, because we are human, fleshly people, so many times we don't choose life over death. In fact, we actually choose the frustration of the flesh. One person has written, deep down we have a sense of individual insecurity and hope to cooperate with other people. Uh, a psycho-cybernetics quote says this, 95% of people in our society have a strong sense of inadequacy. 95%. And then this writer, Stuart Briscoe, uh, writing and preaching today, uh, affiliated with Christianity Today, has this comment about that, and I love it. He writes, I have no difficulty believing that figure, that 95% of people in our society have a strong sense of inadequacy. The only surprise, he says, is the other 5%. (laughs) Why aren't those guys feeling insecure? I think that's a great, great quote. Because again, that's a part of being human. That's a part of being a person of the flesh is feeling a sense of insecurity, feeling a sense of inadequacy uh, and unworthiness. What can make us feel secure about our faith and salvation? Well, for six chapters, Paul has demonstrated, and he's not through yet, that that sense of security and assurance And adequacy rather than inadequacy does not come from ourselves. Paul began the book of Romans establishing that all have sinned in chapters 1 through 3. And then introduced the gospel of being credited with God's righteousness like Father Abraham. Through the sacrifice now of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 5 he talks about how we are descendants of Adam. We may not want to own that, but we are. He is our ancestor. And like Adam, we are fleshly creatures prone 
to sin. Then in chapter 6, he calls us to choose whether we will be slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, slaves to self or slaves to Christ, and live that new way, being raised from baptism to live a new life. And so in the same way in Romans 7, he now will say that we must acknowledge the frustration of seeking our own righteousness and accept the rescue of God that comes only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just as he starts out this great book by helping us to acknowledge that we are sinners, the best of us is unworthy of the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. Here in chapter 7, he's going to remind us that we are all flesh. We are all human people. And as fleshly human beings, we struggle. We struggle with that temptation that the flesh always brings, that call to live selfishly rather than unselfishly and sacrificially, that call to put ourselves first rather than put ourselves last and put others ahead of us. That goes against our physical human nature. And many times that physical human nature wins the day. That's what he's going to remind us of in chapter 7. And again end and then lead into chapter 8 with that great acknowledgement also that says through Jesus Christ we overcome. We are more than conquerors. But only through Christ. Not through our own ability, not through our own righteousness, not through our own faithfulness, only through Christ can we be more than conquerors. And so let's work through this Romans chapter 7, shall we? First of all, the law has authority over a person only as long as that person lives. You say, well, duh, Bill. (laughs) Yeah, well, sometimes we forget that. But what Paul is going to do is he's going to use an analogy from everyday life, which is not his point, but rather is an analogy to discuss his point. His point is we died to sin in Romans 6. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death and we were raised to live a new life. And so his point is this, because the law only is in effect while we are alive, because we have died to sin and been raised to live a new life, the law no longer applies. Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us 
so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, this passage reflects back on Romans chapter 6, dying to sin, and looks ahead to chapter 8, living by the Spirit. This passage is not the ultimate passage on marriage and divorce and remarriage. (laughs) We have to refuse that temptation to read these verses as if they were the only verses in the scriptures that consider that difficult subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's not the only words from God's word about that. In fact, one could say that Paul contradicts the teaching of the Lord in Matthew 19 and even his own statements in 1 Corinthians 7 because that's not what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Both passages, Jesus' words in Matthew 19 and in Mark and Luke as well, and Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, both passages give examples of situations when a person may divorce and remarry. The key to understanding this passage is that Paul's subject is not marriage and divorce and remarriage, but rather his subject is the authority of law. Again, the apostle's point here is that the law has authority over a person only as long as that person lives. Just as a marriage is over when one spouse dies. In that sense, our relationship with the law is now over because we have died to sin. Paul refers back to chapter 6 and dying to sin. That is his point. And dying to sin, we also died to the law and to trying to be justified through obedience to law rather than by grace through faith. Anyone who seeks to be justified by obedience to law will live their lives in frustration. Let me repeat that. Anyone who seeks to be justified by obedience to law will live their lives in frustration. Why is that? It's because we are not completely obedient to that law. That law could save us if we were completely obedient, but if we fail in even one aspect, that law cannot bring about justification. That law cannot bring about forgiveness. As he's going to say, the law is there to help us understand what it really means to be sinful. And it does that in a very effective way way. The clincher for the apostle is that we, including Paul himself, are not completely obedient. In fact, just the opposite is true. Many times we are disobedient. This he conveys in the rest of Romans 7. (coughs) Excuse me. So secondly today, the law and the commandments, though holy and intended to bring life, because of our sin, brought death. They had the opposite effect that God had hoped they would have, wanted them to have, but knew because of our own sinfulness, they would not have. Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. 
Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. He speaks very similarly in Romans chapter 13 as he recounts some of the old law and acknowledges that really the law of love supersedes them to love our neighbor as ourselves. For example, the law and the commandments were intended to bring life and are holy in and of themselves, but because of our sin, they resulted in the death sentence. The wages of sin, he said in Romans 6.23, is death. And so as we reflect on these words, we look ahead to what Paul is going to say. And it calls us to another rhetorical question. Is the law sin? <laughs> That's, that, that seems to be the case. If, if this is true, if the law was given and then we didn't obey it, and so now it brings about death, is the law bad? Is the law sin? And he says, absolutely not. Just as he said at the beginning of Romans 6, verse 1, rhetorically also, should we continue on sinning so that grace might increase? Hey, if this salvation by grace is so effective, so unbelievably good, then why not just make the blood of Jesus worthwhile and do more sinning? And of course, that's not what we do. And in Romans 6, as we saw last week, the reason is, is because that's not who we are. That's not how we were raised from death to sin to live. We were raised to live a new life. And so here he asks, is the law sin? And the answer is the same. Absolutely not. The law and the commandments, though holy and intended to bring life, brought death, but brought death because of my sin, because of our sin, not because the law was flawed. That's what law does. Law says, hey, if you follow this completely, then you're okay. But if you break it, you're not okay. And you must face the consequences. That is law. Let's not blame God or God's law for consequences brought about by our sin. That's what Paul is saying. We ought not trust our nature, our flesh no matter how spiritual we think we are. The most spiritual, the most sinless among us is still a sinner because they are still fleshly. And because of the flesh, we give in to the temptation of the flesh. The law is good and it's clear. We just don't keep it. 
when they begin to talk about in the first century church in places like Acts 11 and Acts 15 about what do we do with these Gentiles? Do we make them keep the law? The response is simple. How can we demand something of them that neither we nor our ancestors have kept faithfully? The law condemns us too. Why would we require that of these new non-Jewish Christians? It didn't save us. Rather, what it did, as Paul brings out here in Romans 7, it shed light on the reality of our sinfulness and how much we deserved to die. We ought not trust our nature, our flesh, no matter how spiritual we think we are. That is an acknowledgement of the power of our sinful nature, the flesh. Paul acknowledges this truth in the next section in words with which we all can unfortunately identify very, very well. Paul verbalizes the frustration we all feel because of sin. There are several amazing things about this paragraph we're about to read in Romans 7 verses 14 through 23. But perhaps the most amazing thing of all is that it is written by the Apostle Paul. This great, amazing, incredible Christian, preacher, teacher, evangelist, missionary is the one who says what I am about to read. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature or flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Again, this, he doesn't say these things to make an excuse for sin. He says these things to acknowledge the overwhelming commonality of sin. We all share the flesh. We all are sinners. None of us can save ourselves because of that. And so Paul is simply verbalizing the frustration that we all feel because of our sin. Later in chapter 12, he's going to say, as Christians, we now offer our bodies as living sacrifices, giving ourselves wholly to the will of God. 
And that is our goal, and that's what we try to do as new creatures in Christ. But we don't do that very well sometimes. And that's the reality of the flesh. And that's the frustration. Paul verbalizes for all of us here. This is why what Grant shared as we gathered around the table was so beautiful as he talked about patience. And I think specifically alluding to the patience that God has with me because of my sin and how that patience called him to sacrifice his own son. Why did God have to do that? Why did Jesus have to die? Because of Romans seven, because I'm a person of the flesh because I am a sinner and cannot save myself and I can't point to the law and have the law save me because I am a lawbreaker. And the law can't save lawbreakers. It can only what? Condemn them. That's the purpose of law, to condemn the lawbreaker. The good news of the gospel is even though I am a lawbreaker, God has provided a way for me to be forgiven, for me to be saved. In spite of the fact that I don't deserve it, in spite of the fact that if I got the wages I deserved, it would be death. The good news of the gospel is that in the gospel, as he begins Romans in chapter 1, Verses 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, he says, the great news of the gospel is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that comes not by my obedience, but that is by faith from first to last, beginning to end. Why is that, Bill? Because it has to be that way. If it's any other way, I don't get it because I'm a sinner. But if salvation and the righteousness of God come through God's grace, comes as an act of gift that someone else pays for, then it is possible. And I don't have to live in the frustration of knowing full well about my own sins and my own failures. I can live in the sense of assurance that Romans 8 starts out with, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some have suggested that what Paul says in Romans 7 refers back to his life under the law, under sin, before he became a Christian. And then Romans 8 reflects living as a Christian as living according to the Spirit while I certainly think that view has credibility, I don't see Paul speaking of his past throughout Romans 7. This sounds like something that he shares as a current daily struggle, even the great apostle Paul. In the context of everything we've seen in Romans so far, he again seems to be contrasting being justified by observing the law versus justification by grace through faith. He speaks of the trap of sin as that he falls into even still, but he recognizes that is not what is in his heart, and that's the point. 
Paul speaks with amazing honesty as he verbalizes the frustration we all feel because of sin. He expresses frustration not only because he found himself doing things he knew were wrong, but also because he, not, he was not doing the things that he knew were right. <laughs> the positive side of Christianity is simply this. It's not just a thou shalt not religion. We have expressed a lot of passion for messages calling us to holiness and moral purity, and, and of course we should. But can we have that same passion when we talk about those things that are thou shalts as well? In my Tuesday, Thursday afternoon Facebook Live study, we're talking about Colossians 3 and this list of thou shalt nots and thou shalts. And we forget sometimes that God has called us to live a certain way. And that means more than just not doing wrong. It means doing what is right. Can we be passionate about those things? Things such as telling others about the Lord. Local and worldwide outreach, helping widows and the poor and others in need. Accepting those who are struggling with temptation and sin, just like we do. Serving our community in positive, concrete ways. Forgiving others, having a burden for the lost. Living joyful lives. Loving others the way Christ loved us, and so forth. That's how we're supposed to live. Not just don't do this, don't do that, and don't do that but live with such joy and hope that people see that expressed in what we do, not just in what we refrain from doing. Can we acknowledge that God is just as concerned about what we're for as what we are against? Paul says, hey, look, the things I don't want to do, I do them. That's breaking the thou shalt nots. But he also says, the things that I know I should be doing, I don't do. We are called upon in a very positive way to do what is right and good and to stir one another on toward love and good deeds. Several scriptures on the outline under this point C that tell us and remind us that as Christians, we are to go about doing good, just like it was said of Jesus, that we are to devote ourselves to doing good, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what is good. We all need a safe place where we can go to confess what Paul confesses here. Aren't you amazed that this great, incredible, faithful, spiritual giant, the apostle Paul says these things and announces is very open about his struggle? Like Paul, sometimes I don't do the things I should do and sometimes I do things I know I shouldn't do. We all could say that. Paul here acknowledges what one person has called an emotional roller coaster that we are all on, experiencing times when our faith is strong and we're able to withstand temptation and other times when we are weak and fail. One person has said, there's been real tension between when people have wanted me to be strong and have refused to let me be weak. Some have tempted me not to reveal my weaknesses, even though every day seemed like another ride on an emotional roller coaster. While it must be done in appropriate ways to trusted individuals, we are called upon to confess our faults and our sins one to another and to pray for one another. The emotional roller coaster that is our lives when we try to hide our sin must stop. 
We need a safe place where we can go to confess our sins and our weaknesses, to acknowledge that on our own we don't measure up, just like Paul does here. That sometimes we don't do what we should do and we do what we shouldn't do. We need a safe place where we can go with others who do not measure up on their own, but who have come to trust in the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ. That safe place should be the church. That safe place should be here with each other, where we can be just as honest about our own weaknesses, our own sinfulness, as Paul is in Romans chapter 7. Here we should find people that love us, that accept us as we are, but refuse to let us stay that way, who will call us to account but will not stop loving us, who will be there for us with genuine joy when things are good and real help when times are tough, who will be there for us when our lives are falling apart because of our own sins or the sins of those close to us. They will be with us who will not think less of us in the process, but will make sure as best they can that we remain committed and faithful to righteousness living, to becoming more and more like what Jesus calls us to be. That safe place should be the church. And so as we close out Romans chapter seven, we have this to say, though Paul acknowledges that the battles of temptation and sin will continue, he affirms that Jesus has won the war. What he says here is that Paul has failed. Paul has not won the war, but Jesus has. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we sing these great songs of praise. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah, not Bill or any other person. But only God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 7, verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am. And reading those first 23 verses, we hear where he's coming from. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death, this body of flesh, this body of sin? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature or flesh, a slave to the law of sin. That will continue to be my struggle, but I approach that struggle victoriously, not because of my goodness, but because of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You might say, Bill, the bar is too high. There's, there's no way I can measure up to this kind of standard, this righteousness living. And you're exactly right. You can't measure up. (laughs) And neither can I. And neither can Paul. He understood that. And here is where his frustration turns to overwhelming joy, gratitude, and praise. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, there is power in the blood. That's where the power is. Not in you or me, not in your life or mine. There is power in the blood. Though Paul acknowledges that the battles of temptation and sin will continue, he affirms that Jesus has won the war. That is the whole point of everything we've seen so far 
in this great book. We are saved by grace through faith, called to righteousness living, with confident trust and assurance not in ourselves, but in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this great truth is what will lead us away from the frustration of the flesh that is seen in Romans 7. And into the great chapter, Romans 8, my favorite chapter in the Bible, the call to righteousness living by the Spirit. The call that asks the question, as Galen shared, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because of our good lives? No. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, your sinfulness will not separate you from God because of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is power in the blood. Trusting in our own deeds and righteousness will only end in frustration and insecurity. Real security is found only in Jesus Christ. There is power. There is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. This morning, if you're ready to accept that power in your life, come as we stand, sing this great hymn together.